Whether drinking alcohol should be permitted as Christians celebrate and interact. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What do you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Kane in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? If it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth. I'm Greg. And in fact, welcome to a scripture-laden Walk the Earth, as I'm going to look at this question of alcohol from more than one angle. You see, it's one thing to talk about drunkenness on one extreme, and it's another thing to talk about what I'm going to allow C.S. Lewis here in a moment to describe as teetotalism as the other extreme, when the answer has historically always been held to be somewhere in the middle, meaning that talking about drinking alcohol within Christian faith and practice is going to have to be answered from kind of both those angles, one from the perspective of what's not allowed, and the other from the perspective of what is allowed, because it's not as simple as one or the other. To frame this up, I think what I'd like to do is go back to my archives and look at a section of conversation that was had online years ago on the Simply Syndicated forum. It was a post and a thread about religion, And as you might imagine, if I'm going to participate in an online forum, that's going to be one of the areas that I'm going to have a lot of interest and do a lot of participating. And one of the people that I'll describe as an online acquaintance, we've never met, and I don't know that we see the world enough of the same way to go ahead and make the presumption of saying, hey, we're online friends. But uh, Jason from the Atomic Trivia War 9000 podcast, in the course of driving some of the conversation in this thread, this very general thread about religion, asked a direct question, and I took it as a question directed toward me because, again, I was speaking on the thread as a Christian about Christianity to a group of people who, by and large, weren't. And the question was this, Christians, why aren't you Muslims? I think the thought process might be that theism is one thing, and I think that if your worldview was atheism, then the opposite of that is not just Christianity. Uh, In fact, that's a very short-sighted, myopic worldview for a Christian to have to suggest that they are the opposite of atheism. Now, the opposite of atheism is theism in general, and if theism can, here in the last, you know, 2,000 to 3,000 years, be viewed predominantly, although maybe not exclusively, as Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, you can understand why somebody who felt that they were outside of those religious faiths uh, might view it as a progression. Certainly chronologically, if you were a a big adherent to a horizontal time, you might see it as a progression. Uh, Judaism existed at the beginning of the early sacred texts of both Christianity and Islam. There's an acknowledgement that Judaism was first. Jesus, a central figure of Christianity, came from out of Judaism. So you can understand why someone might say, hey, if that progression of time is moving in this direction, then why haven't all Christians simply become Muslims, it's the latest trendy version of theism, right? So here is the answer that I provided. Speaking for myself, I never saw any reason for adopting Islam. With Christianity departing from the legalism of Judaism via the law, my personal choice of dispensing with the legalism of Roman Catholicism and that via the tradition, it didn't make much sense even to me to consider another form of legalism via submission which is one way of interpreting the meaning of Islam. I'll grant that I struggle to dispense with evangelical Protestant forms of legalism called fundamentalism, but that's okay. I know that those people misrepresent their faith by trying to systematize things they believe and bypass the actual learning and knowing, which is how I view faith. Their legalism is just a mistake they are making rather than a standard believer should follow. My experience is that faith is not mere belief. I wouldn't want to trade in that for a method or a system for another set of rules. Again, it's just me, but as I studied Islam, and did so at the collegiate level, in fact, it didn't strike me as a road forward for my faith. It reminded me of one of the things that Jesus, Peter, and Paul left behind in the Old Testament. Having said that, I would not presume to force my approach on others. Doing so, in fact, would be imposing something that would be just a method, for them, despite being truly personal 
to me. And that was my answer to the question, why am I not a Muslim? It's important to this particular topic to talk in terms of the difference between Christianity and Islam, because it does help to answer the question that we're facing today, and that is whether or not alcohol is okay. Is it allowed within Christian celebration? Can drinking alcohol be permitted? And I'm going to go first and foremost, as I have here in a few of these questions, to what might be considered to be the obvious, easy, straightforward answer, and perhaps for me the ultimate answer, but then I'm going to muddy up the waters by sharing a lot of scripture, because the scripture to me will do two things. It will answer the question of fundamentalist Protestant evangelical Christianity suggesting that the Jesus never drank and that there was no alcohol back then and that alcohol is an evil, a worldly carnal thing that was introduced later that we should be resisting. The scriptures will answer that question of whether or not there was alcohol in Jesus' time and whether Jesus drank alcohol and whether the alcohol that Jesus drank could get you drunk. Very important to answer that. But it's also going to raise some interesting questions about whether Christians today should be experimenting as freely as many of us do. We'll get both sides today, I guess is the right answer. But let me start with a quick look back at some quotes from Mere Christianity, the uh, C.S. Lewis book based on C.S. Lewis radio shows done during World War II, and an article that I found online, a mercslewis.blogspot.com article called Temperance. I'm going to refer actually to Temperance Part 1, parentheses Cardinal Virtue 2. And here's the quotes. Temperance is, unfortunately, one of those words that has changed its meaning. It now usually means teetotalism. Teetotalism in this sense, Greg speaking, it would be the, uh, the total abstinence from the use of alcohol. Again, a very Muslim sort of worldview. But in the days when the second cardinal virtue was christened temperance, it meant nothing of the sort. Temperance referred not specifically to drink, but to all pleasures, and it meant not abstaining, but going for the right length and no further. It is a mistake to think that Christians ought to all be teetotalers. Mohammedism, not Christianity, is the teetotal religion. Of course, it may be the duty of a particular Christian, or of any Christian at a particular time, to abstain from strong drink either because he is the sort of man who cannot drink at all without drinking too much, or because he is with people who are inclined to drunkenness but must not encourage them by drinking himself. But the whole point is that he is abstaining for a good reason, from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoying. One of the many marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage, or meat, or beer, or the cinema. But the moment he starts saying that the things are bad in themselves, or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turning. This is C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. And what that quote tells us about the attitude of so many people in what I would call the religious right, or more broadly, politically active Christianity. This fundamentalist notion that some things are bad and the people who do them are bad. We'll note here that when C.S. Lewis was talking this through, for him, the bad people weren't those who drink temperately, or as we might say, in moderation. The bad people are people who decide that they cannot resist something or should not be asked to resist something without forcing everyone else to resist it too. This has application across a whole range of social issues, things that we might describe as being the fodder of culture wars today, where again, one of the leading theologians of my lifetime, certainly of the last hundred years or so, has laid down a pretty clear marker that the people who are trying to restrict the rights of others because they cannot on their own resist the temptations that they face, and yet do so in the name of Christianity and for purportedly Christian reasons, are, to quote C.S. Lewis, bad people. What this means is that for Christians to drink alcohol in moments of celebration and other particular points of interaction cannot possibly be conceived as evil. The evil is rather how we handle what I might call enforced temperance, or teetotalism. And it's ironic to me, and I intentionally make this comparison between Islam and Christianity, not to be confrontational toward Islam, but instead to be confrontational toward the religious right. 
that in so many ways, so many things that culturally are the fodder of these culture wars, are the focus of the entire religious worldview of some Christians, looks so little like Jesus, so little like Christianity, and so much more like Islam, that it's deeply ironic that these same people have such a violent animosity toward Islam. It's perhaps like two siblings, two fraternal twins, who are so close to each other in age and in family relationship that they fight constantly. That's a problem. Because the first assumption, kind of behind this question, so what sort of things are begging the question inside the question that we're looking at today? One is that drinking alcohol is somehow a problem in and of itself. That we conflate concepts of drinking at all with drunkenness, for example. Uh, that we don't see any level of usage which isn't excess. Or we have absolutely no idea in this modern age how to understand what the cardinal virtues were at the dawn of Christianity and the use of terminology like temperance or moderation. So, to me, the answer to today's question is that, yes, of course, Christians can drink. The problem is not drinking. It's not alcohol itself. It's not the existence of alcohol. It's drunkenness and its excess, and especially for those people who I would describe as, well, I guess the word, the word you use for it is bad drunk. I've told a story before on inappropriate conversations, and I didn't go into a lot of detail, but I, when I was a freshman in college, the resident assistant, the upperclassman who was in charge of taking care of a dormitory floor or a wing of a dormitory, to make sure that incoming freshmen got off to a good start, that uh, nobody was taking advantage of anybody, that people who perhaps needed a, a wise word of counsel about attending classes or managing a, a heavy class load, that there was someone there who's, who wasn't just able, but it, his job was to provide that kind of advice. And I've had that kind of advice provided really poorly before. The resident assistant that I had in the first dormitory I lived in was fairly horrific at his job. And the later ones I had were, were much, much better. But this one was really bad at his job, and, and his number one problem was he was a bad drunk. So he would get to like a Friday night and a Saturday where it was his weekend and he had his time off and he was somewhat off duty, but he still lived on the dormitory floor with us. And if he was the kind of guy who'd drink too much and come back to the dorm looking for a fight, he became a bully or even a predator of the very people in the like that freshman class he was supposed to be looking out for and taking care of. So we all know people who are bad drunks, who become abusive or violent or you know, fail to live up to, to their responsibilities, or simply take it that step too far that C.S. Lewis talked about, where if the Holy Spirit was giving you an answer to a prayer that you had raised earlier in the day or even in, earlier in your life, that you might not be in a point of mental capacity to comprehend what the Lord was telling you. And that's always going to be a mistake. But it's also a mistake when people imply that that was never a risk for Jesus of Nazareth. It's interesting how strangely protective some Christians get of Christ, as if, on the one hand, acknowledging that he is God incarnate, creator of all things, um, there from the beginning of time, uh, knowing the future, and yet has to be so carefully protected. To me, it's far more profound that Jesus drank alcoholic beverages but modeled the behavior of not drinking to excess or drunkenness than to suggest through some sort of twisted historical revisionism that Jesus either never drank alcohol at all, or that the places in the Bible where it suggests that he did, he did, but it wasn't really alcohol. It was what we call grape juice today. That sort of logic. And it's strange, even stranger to me, when it comes from people who are either Roman Catholic or Episcopalian, because these are people who drink wine every time they take communion, and yet would somehow argue that the wine isn't really wine. So what I want to do is take a look at several passages of Scripture at an appropriate length. Now, this isn't going to be uh, like Inappropriate Conversations 150, opening the Scriptures, reading entire chapters. But it's also not just going to be isolated verses here and there. I don't want to be the kind of person who I might accuse of being quoting chapter and verse, being selective, losing the sense of context. So I'm going to provide the sense of context. But what I want us to look for as we kind of walk through three or four scripture passages, is what does the passage itself say about whether or not alcoholic beverages that could get you drunk existed in biblical times, for one, 
whether Jesus participated in drinking those beverages for another, and what all that means for us pointing forward. Because that's where it gets a little bit interesting. That's where there's, I guess, room for a discussion about moderation because things are not so simple as being legalistically clear. Jesus didn't really come and walk the earth to call a lot of good things good and a lot of bad things bad. Every time he had a chance to draw in harsh black lines, he told stories that were full of color instead. And there's a reason for that. And often, when Jesus was asked about those points in the Old Testament where the clear black lines seemed to be drawn, where dark boxes were written around the rules, Jesus often responded to people challenging him about the rules by saying interesting things like, You have heard that it was said in the law, but I tell you this instead. And I think if we want to be followers of Christ, and for me, walking the earth is all about continuing to be a follower of Christ in a period of time when much of the church has lost its way, where the church has retreated into legalism, where it's backed away in fear of the challenges that, frankly, we should have predicted we'd be facing at this point in time, that I want to continue to follow Jesus, Jesus's way, not in some two-dimensional you know, storybook version of Jesus's way. But having said that, I do want to go to the stories because I think the stories are very informative. And I'm going to look at these in what I'm going to consider to be something of a chronological order. Now, it's a little bit tricky. It's hard to say between John's gospel and the other three, the so-called synoptic gospels, where things fall from a chronological perspective. But I'll do the best I can, and I'll base it generally along the concept of chapter numbers. The lower the chapter number, probably the earlier in the story, the uh, particular anecdote falls. And I want to begin with the last of those three Gospels, John chapter 2, beginning at the beginning of the chapter. Because I want to answer the question right up front of whether or not alcoholic beverages existed in Jesus' time, and whether Jesus was aware of alcoholic beverages, and whether Jesus had a problem with the existence of alcoholic beverages. This is going to answer the, the question of the most extreme teetotalism within Christianity, the sort of the religious right, um, all alcohol is evil, dry county type of Christianity. And these are the same people who by and large believe that the Bible is the infallible inerrant word of God. So let's go there. Let's go to the infallible inerrant word of God in John chapter 2. Two days later, there was a wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee. Jesus's mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine had given out, Jesus' mother said to him, They are out of wine. Jesus replied, You must not tell me what to do. My time has not yet come. Jesus' mother then told the servants, Do whatever he tells you. The Jews have rules about ritual washing, and for this purpose, six stone water jars were there, uh, each one large enough to hold between 20 and 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill these jars with water. They filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some water out and take it to the man in charge of the feast. They took him the water, which now had turned into wine, and he tasted it. He did not know where this wine had come from. But of course the servants who had drawn the water knew. So he called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone else serves the best wine first, and after the guests have drunk a lot, he serves the ordinary wine. But, but you have kept the best wine until now. Jesus performed this first miracle in Cana in Galilee, and there he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, Jesus and his mother, brothers, and disciples went to Capernaum and stayed there for a few days. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus not only would have acknowledged the existence of alcoholic beverages, but he created some at a wedding in Galilee. Jesus clearly does not have this strict legalistic perspective that all alcohol is evil and we shouldn't speak of it, much less touch it and certainly not drink it. And you can perhaps twist your logic to tell yourself that when you're reading this story, wine really means grape juice and that there's no indication that people have become intoxicated by the drink. But I think the story itself really undermines that sort of understanding the reason that you typically would serve the best wine first at a wedding and the lesser quality wine later is because by the time you've had a few glasses of the best wine, your capacity, 
your your mental judgment, your taste buds, uh, your your level of drunkenness will have gotten to such a degree that it won't really be that noticeable to you if the quality of what you're having in your third, fourth, and fifth class is lower than it was in the first two or three. I had a friend in high school who once told me that his perspective was that gin worked the same way. That if you got a gin and some mix, you know, probably not the gin and tonic water type, more of a Collins mix type approach. And if you made the first Tom Collins very weak and the second one proportionally stronger and the third one proportionally stronger, if you had five or six of these, the last of those glasses of what might purportedly be a Tom Collins could be pure gin or almost pure gin and your taste buds wouldn't notice it. Because if you progressively had more and more to drink, your mind would trick you into thinking that what you were drinking was of the same taste and caliber as what you'd had before. Similar idea here. So Jesus is not only creating wine, he's creating an excellent wine that was regarded by the guests at the wedding to be even better than the best wine typically served for that initial toast. So I think that answers the question pretty well of whether or not Jesus was aware of and had any issue with the existence of alcohol. So, did Jesus feel strongly enough about alcohol, or alcoholic beverages, to refer to them in parable? Well, let's jump up to Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39, the end of the fifth chapter of Luke. Some people said to Jesus, The disciples of John fast frequently and offer prayers, and the disciples of the Pharisees do the same, but your disciples eat and drink. Jesus answered, Do you think you can make the guests at a wedding party go without food as long as the bridegroom is with them? Of course not. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus also told them this parable. You don't tear off a piece of a new coat to patch up an old coat. If you do, you will have torn the new coat, and the piece of new cloth will not match the old nor do you pour new wine into used wineskins, because the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will pour out, and the skins will be ruined. Instead, new wine must be poured into fresh wineskins. And you don't want new wine after drinking old wine. The old is better, you say. Jesus, answering a question in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. A couple of things we can infer from this that I think are interesting. Uh, First off, Jesus is saying pretty clearly that the wine he's referring to is a fermented beverage. If you pour a freshly bought container of diluted grape juice from concentrate into some sort of a fabric pouch, and it's an old fabric pouch that has been used for grape juice from concentrate all this time, and at no point has the grape juice ever been allowed to grow old or to ferment or to mold, but... You are now taking a grape juice that is fresh and just bought from the store and pouring it into a grape juice pouch that probably had two, three, two or three week old grape juice in it at one point, maybe at the oldest. There's no risk of the uh, calamity Jesus is describing here about ruining your wine skin and losing all your wine if we're talking about grape juice. This is a quality of the fermentation process. So there is no doubt that Jesus is talking about fermented drink with an alcohol content in it. The notion that putting a new wine into an old wineskin, and when that wine itself ages and begins the process of becoming hopefully as good as the old wine, it will burst the old wineskin. So this, again, this notion that, okay, well, maybe Jesus acknowledged that there was wine and maybe Jesus created wine, but did, was Jesus aware of that? Was that conversation between the guest at the wedding in Cana and the host of the wedding at Cana something that Jesus was unaware of? And again, it's a silly concept for me, depending on how you read Scripture, to interpret Jesus as being unaware of anything recorded in Scripture is a silly notion. But there's no doubt Jesus was thinking the same way. The guest at that wedding said, the old wine is better. And here Jesus is actually saying the same thing. The old wine is better. The other thing that comes out of this particular passage, though, the second of the four I want to share, is that Jesus is beginning to make this suggestion that while he was on the earth, his followers were with him, and their time together was one of celebration, and eating and drinking was involved, there would come a time when his followers would stop to fast and, frankly, to mourn. The question that I don't have an answer to is how long that time of mourning is supposed to be. And let's not forget 
than in the first few centuries of Christianity. As C.S. Lewis has told us, the church had a different answer than one that some within the church is pushing forth today. Jump forward to the end of Jesus' story, and let's take a look at the passage in Matthew's Gospel for the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26, verses 26 through, call it 30, perhaps. While they were eating, Jesus took a piece of bread, gave a prayer of thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. Take and eat it, he said. This is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks to God, and gave it to them. Drink it, all of you, he said. This is my blood, which seals God's covenant, my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will never drink again this wine until the day I drink the new wine with you in my Father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. So once again, Jesus making a reference to new wine, this time making a reference to new wine from a heavenly perspective. So, Jesus is now not only drinking alcoholic beverages at a dinner um, in a way that is you know, presented to us as if it's not at all unusual. He's actually sharing the cup with all of his followers and insisting that they drink with him. Now, if the notion of some in the church that all consumption of alcohol is inherently evil, this casts Jesus in the role of the social director of a fraternity putting intense peer pressure on his pledges to drink, 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 drink. Which is ridiculous, because drinking alcohol in the presence of Jesus was not unusual, it was normal. And on this occasion, it was being done slightly differently, because it was being done slightly differently in the context of ritual. But once again, someone might come along and say, well, but Greg, just because they were drinking doesn't mean that they were drinking to get drunk, because getting drunk didn't exist back then, because the alcohol back then was so much more tame and safe and benign than the alcohol today. The alcohol today sold in those liquor stores as dangerous, and we should have nothing whatsoever to do with it, and it's because what Jesus allowed back then was nothing in alcohol content. We called it wine, but it wasn't really wine. But what's out there today is hideously sinful in alcohol content. And that is sort of the, the two sides of it that we've been presented, right? The give and the take. I'm going to come along at the end and offer some words of consolation toward that other view. But I think it's important for us to stop and recognize that that other view is not helpful. The insinuation that no one at the time of Jesus could possibly have gotten drunk by drinking wine is ridiculous. Because we have proverbs that warn about drunkenness. Why would we have a proverb warning people about drunkenness if people were incapable of getting drunk? And I think most of the time when I have these kinds of conversations, I tread a little bit lightly. Because I have had these conversations before in what I'd call a small group setting or in a Sunday school meeting. But I always got the sense I was talking with people who were taking such a hard line because they either were or one day would be part of a group like Alcoholics Anonymous or even Alcoholics Anonymous itself. And the last thing I would want to do would be to talk them into feeling like it was okay for them to take the risk of drinking. For some people, there should be no risk of drinking. They should wall that off. But as C.S. Lewis reminds us, trying to take the things that I'm you know, willfully denying myself and to protect myself by forcing everyone else to do things my way is a bad thing to do. It extends beyond what Scripture tells us. It is perhaps prideful, and if so, definitely sinful. And especially when it includes a lot of self-deception, and when that self-deception is expressed in such a way that it turns into the deception of others. I'm going to read from Acts chapter 2, talking about the day of Pentecost. And I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, because this may be a place in Scripture where I pick up the concept again in the next couple of questions. We'll see. But I want to talk about the introduction to it. So rather than getting into what Peter's sermon would be that day, I kind of want to talk about the context around that sermon. Because the, uh, the version of the Bible I'm looking at, the Good News Version, has a subtitle that says, The Coming of the Holy Spirit. And how did some people interpret the infilling and indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Well, some of them interpreted it as drunkenness. And again, how does the term drunkenness make sense if the apostles weren't drinking alcohol, and if drinking alcohol could not have logically led to drunkenness. So let me sort of 
walk through this a little bit, beginning at the start of Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, all the believers were gathered together in one place. Suddenly there was a noise from the sky which sounded like a strong wind blowing, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They looked around and saw what looked like tongues of fire which spread out and touched each person there. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to talk in other languages as the Spirit enabled them to speak. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, religious people who had come from every country in the world. When they heard this noise, a large crowd gathered. They were all excited because all of them heard the believers talking in their own languages. In amazement and wonder, they exclaimed, These people are talking like this. They're Galileans. How is it then that all of us hear them speaking in our own native languages? We are from Parthia, Medea, and Elam, from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, and Pontus and Asia, from Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt, and regions you know, near Libya and Cyrene. Some of us are from Rome. Both Jews and Gentiles converted to Judaism, and some of us are from Crete and Arabia, yet all of us hear them speaking in our own languages about the great things God has done. Amazed and confused, they kept asking each other, What does this mean? But others made fun of the believers, saying, These people are drunk. Then Peter stood up with the other eleven apostles, and in a loud voice began to speak to the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, listen to me and let me tell you what this means. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine o'clock in the morning. And then Peter began to share from the Old Testament prophecies, beginning with the prophet Joel. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 15. Notice that Peter has an opportunity here to answer the question far more definitively by instead of saying, these people, this group of disciples and apostles and, and tangential followers of Christ who are here for the coming of the Holy Spirit are not drunk because we never drink alcohol. But Peter didn't do that. He didn't say, we're not drunk because even though in our past we might have drunk alcohol, we are on a fast that is going to last till the end of human history. He didn't do that. He didn't even say that he was still fasting and abstaining from alcohol right now as if the fast that Jesus referred to in Luke 5 and alluded to in Matthew 26 would be a fast that would come uh, maybe for the first 40 days or 45 days or 49 days after his death and resurrection. But here, something like 50 or more days later, Peter makes no reference to that fast at all. The best way to prove to someone that I could not possibly be drunk would be to say that I never drink or that I'm not anymore, but he doesn't. He says, these people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. The implication being, come along after dinner and there's probably going to be somebody in the room who's tipped the glass one time too many. <laughs> Meaning, if you tip the glass one time too many, you could suffer an error in judgment and temperance and move from having had something to drink to being drunk. And Peter was implying that that could possibly happen even with the group of the followers of Christ who had gathered on the day of the coming of the Holy Spirit. So where does this difference of opinion come from? Because it isn't hard for us to find people who would tell you that any consumption of any alcohol is evil. The period of time in the United States leading up to prohibition, lips that touch alcohol will never touch mine. And I've got to say that one of my favorite songs by the country singer Loretta Lynn is don't come home a-drinkin' with lovin' on your mind. So there is a, a long strain in traditional Americana uh, that says that Christianity has this view that no one should ever drink. And to me, it comes from two sources. One of them I mentioned to earlier from my Sunday school class years and years ago, that if you were somebody who was in some sort of alcohol recovery program, you might want to refrain from invitations to parties where a lot of people are going to be doing a lot of drinking because it might be really hard for you to resist the temptation. That's appropriate. It's just not appropriate for you to try to make it impossible for other people who don't suffer the same circumstances you do because you want to force people to do things your way, to make your path more simple. But there is this other view, a more theological perspective, that doesn't come necessarily from the, uh, the Last Supper. I, I shared from Matthew 26. Jesus does share then that he's not going to have wine again until he drinks wine with us in heaven. Which is interesting, because Jesus is saying there's going to be alcohol in heaven. 
but the other part of it is that Jesus actually, by the time that night was over and the sun was up, wouldn't have had the opportunity to really drink wine in celebration or as part of community because of his arrest and crucifixion coming so quickly on the heels of that meal. I mean, the Last Supper is named the Last Supper for a reason. It was the last time he and his followers were able to dine together. But Jesus is saying that Christians will celebrate and interact with him in the new heaven and new earth with new wine, which does seem to answer the question of whether drinking alcohol should be permitted as Christians celebrate and interact. The wild card being the notion of moderation. However, there is this other idea that goes more earlier to, to Luke chapter 5. I shared the passage from Luke chapter 5 to establish that not only did Jesus understand wine and refer to it in parables and view it as a fermented beverage that with an alcohol content that could get you drunk, but he also says this interesting thing because he's answering a direct question from people who want to know the difference between Jesus and his followers who seem to be celebrating in their interaction versus the serious sort of approach, I guess the way you'd word it, from the Pharisees and from the disciples of John the Baptist. And Jesus is trying to explain to them that he is the groom in this wedding ceremony so of course there is going to be a wedding party and of course that wedding party is going to include food and drink and of course that celebration of the time with jesus while he was here is going to be uh, something that is going to break some of those rules because jesus told us he came to fulfill the law and by the time he was done it was all going to be done every dot every iota he says in the sermon on the mount that he came to fulfill the law and not one dot or not one iota would be gone until he had accomplished his task. But by the time we get to the end of the Gospels in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus has accomplished his task. And he has told us right from the start, he's not going to leave some piece of it open-ended. He's not going to leave a loophole. He's not going to leave a set of rules behind that people can become enslaved to again, as Paul warned us against, in the entire book of Galatians, particularly chapter 3. No, Jesus said, it's all here. I'm going to fulfill it all, including admonitions against drinking. So Jesus says this, just quoting verses uh, 34 and 35 again from Luke chapter 5. Do you think you can make the guests at a wedding party go without food as long as the bridegroom is with them? Of course not. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So the question, the wrinkle, the excuse I will offer some of the more cult-like versions of ascetic Christianity is that you perhaps could read that passage and interpret it as Jesus saying, not only will he not drink again until we see him in heaven, but none of us are supposed to drink again until we see him in heaven. But the problem with that, of course, is Jesus, by the end of the gospel passages, hands out wine, insists that we share in the wine, tells us that that wine is his body and his blood, and it becomes what essentially is, I would call it, the first sacrament of Christianity, um, the first post-resurrection sacrament, whereas maybe baptism was around during Jesus' time, even before Jesus' time, and became a sacrament. But this is the sacrament that came from the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, and it involves drinking wine. If you're a Roman Catholic, you drink wine every time you take the Mass. So, I don't think we can read Luke chapter 5 as some kind of a iron-fisted ban on the use of a substance because the substance itself is evil. So I come down on this question of whether Christians are allowed to drink alcohol with the answer temperately. But there's an interesting wrinkle here that I think people who've listened to inappropriate conversations more than maybe just exclusively walk the earth will understand about me right off the bat. When I say something, the answer to a question is temperately, that means yes, temperately. Because there's no way it can mean no, temperately. No is not an avenue from which there is a layer of permission. That yes and no are not 50-50 on a scale. No is 0%, and everything else beyond that is not no. It is somehow some degree of yes. Now, we can decide whether temperately is... 0 to 5% or 0 to 3% or 0 to 50% or 0 to 90%. I think probably each individual has to set that limit for themselves. Understanding that the goal here is that at any point in time, 
as a Christ follower, the Holy Spirit can metaphorically grab you and give you information that you must know, must comprehend, and must act upon. And therefore, it's critical that the use of alcoholic beverages, while they may be permitted to drink, should not get to the point that it would create a barrier between your ability to fulfill your side of that conversation with God. If you're going to get an answered prayer, you need to hear it and you need to act upon it. And for far too many people, the drinking of alcoholic beverages interferes with that. There is a time in life for fasting and praying, for abstaining from alcohol and from other of what C.S. Lewis might describe as worldly pleasures. But this notion that as Christians, we are not of this world, and everything that is of this world is carnal and evil, doesn't represent the Christian worldview that Jesus left us with from his earthly ministry. It represents more closely a dualism, a what I would describe as a perversion of the Christian message in the form of Gnosticism, which had this idea that heavenly is good, earthly is evil. That good-evil paradigm where... People have twisted the words of Paul to take Paul into a Gnostic direction. The Gnostic Paul, for example, would say that, yes, uh, all, all things that you can eat and drink, all things that you can experience with your senses are totally evil and you should abstain from them. We should live a spiritual life and that the earth is uh, a place where a, a hell to which we've been consigned. But that's Gnostic Paul, not the real Paul. Christian Paul would have agreed both with Jesus before him and with those early Christian philosophers who came right after. And they said a very different thing about the use of alcohol. Their meaning, according to C.S. Lewis, of the cardinal virtue of temperance was not the same thing as abstaining. I'm going to end this with the Lewis quote again, because I think C.S. Lewis does provide us with a much more definitive answer. Temperance is, unfortunately, one of those words that has changed its meaning. It now usually means teetotalism. But in the days when the second cardinal virtue was christened temperance, it meant nothing of the sort. Temperance referred not specifically to drink, but to all pleasures. It meant not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. It is a mistake to think that Christians ought all to be teetotalers. Mohammedism, not Christianity, is the teetotal religion. C.S. Lewis, from Mere Christianity. Let me end with a piece of personal confession here. I kind of intended to cover this Walk the Earth question with a snifter with a half an ounce of a single malt whiskey that I recently bought, uh, made in a kind of a small artisanal distillery in New York, and one of the better bourbons I've ever tried, as a matter of fact, because it is possible to drink without being drunk. It is possible to, to have that experience from the perspective of taste, more than from the perspective of inebriation. One of the better things that Facebook has done for me, and by the way, Walk the Earth has a page on Facebook where I do share whatever is kind of on my mind, often leading up to the question of each month, but not always. I also can be found on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. But one of the best things about Facebook is that it connected me with the right combination of people from high school. Now, I've got to be honest, there's people from my high school that I, that I have missed and still miss and do not have a connection with because they're either not on Facebook or I haven't found them. And I don't tend to friend people. My habit as a Facebook social media user is not to be aggressively going out there and trying to expand my circle. I'm more the person who's going to say yes when somebody asks me to join their circle, but not necessarily be the first one to go extend an invitation myself. But one of the things I did not long after I got on Facebook was to go look for a, a certain set of high school people. And after I went to look for my circle of friends and for the people who were influential to me and maybe didn't know that they were, one question jumped into my mind. And it was one particular friend who was a year older than me, a grade older. And my question for looking him up on Facebook was really kind of a sad question. It was, I wonder if he's still alive. The main reason I had to ask myself the question was that he and I had a difference of opinion while experimenting illegally with underage drinking in high school. But one of the points of view that we had was, my attitude was that alcohol is like an ingredient. It's like a food product. It's a beverage. And the interesting thing for me is the differences in the tastes and the combination of tastes and what they do from 
from a social sort of social drinking perspective. Dan had a different attitude. Dan's attitude was drinking is alcohol. It's a controlled substance. It's like a drug. You drink to get drunk. And both of us are right, I guess, be the way I'd word it. But where I think it got interesting was he had a, a philosophy that said, if you're drinking alcohol because you enjoy the taste, you are far more likely to become an alcoholic. And my point of view was, if you're drinking alcohol because you want to get smashed and inebriated, you are far more likely to become an alcoholic. And maybe both of us are wrong, or maybe both of us are right. I don't know that. I was just kind of convinced that if this guy carried on at the pace he was, he wouldn't be alive to see age 50. And by all accounts, according to Facebook, he is alive to, to reach age 50. Which means, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was right, and that every time you drink alcohol, you know you're doing something that's, that's like a drug use, and therefore you've got to control it. Or it could mean that I was, my fears were, uh, were not right, and that I was afraid that if you were actually using drugs at all, if you were using drugs as drugs, that you were going to eventually develop a dependency or um, change your brain chemistry in such a way that alcoholism becomes an issue, that he was more at risk than I thought I was. But it was interesting that both of us felt the other one of us was kind of at risk. Among the things that I think that helped me was a topic I'll save for another time and another day. I've shared it on inappropriate conversations before, but I, I have rules about not drinking as a crutch, not drinking alcohol because you're angry or because you're depressed, uh, that it needs to be celebration, not medication. If you've got a severe form of depression, alcohol is not the drug to deal with that issue. If you are you know, running away from serious psychological damage that's been done to you, um, you may not need drugs at all, but if you do, alcohol is not the drug for that. It's about celebration. And while I'm happy that my friend Dan either changed his approach and lived to tell the story or was right about his use of alcohol and lived to tell the story, the, the main thing is he lived to tell the story. But it's interesting that we had that difference of opinion, and that difference of opinion speaks so directly to this issue. Because whether it's treated as an ingredient or treated as a drug, the abuse of alcohol still remains a major problem. And if you're a person who cannot drink alcohol without treating it as a drug for the purposes of going too far, taking that step outside of temperance, then yes, for that particular Christian, the consumption of alcohol probably should be restricted or banned. But notice that I said, for me, alcohol is is an element of celebration, not medication. And that gives you the answer. Whether drinking alcohol should be permitted as Christians celebrate and interact, yeah, it just needs to be done in the way that is an act of celebration. Simple as that. Peter was not wrong by telling the people that he was addressing that it wasn't even the noon hour yet. It was roughly 9 o'clock in the morning. No one's going to be drinking in his circle of friends at that point in time. The day had just begun. They had not yet reached the point of having something to celebrate by drinking. And more interestingly, from that second chapter of Acts, what they found, I'm I'm going to say, was far more impactful than any alcoholic beverage possibly could have been, even if that alcoholic beverage was being imbibed particularly to take you to a point of having a mind-altering experience. The early church, on that point in time, described in Acts chapter 2, had had a mind-altering experience far more profound than any alcoholic beverage could possibly generate, whether used in moderation or used recklessly. So, the rest of the story is, between being in touch and in contact and in communication with the Holy Spirit, or having one more beer, one more beer is always going to lose. If and as you are led, please join me in prayer. O loving Lord, I look forward to the day, as you've described, when we will have the opportunity to drink the new wine with you in a new heaven and new earth. In the meantime, though, Jesus, I believe you've placed me here on this earth, in this place, and in this time for a reason. Help me to live the life that I need to live, to encounter the people that you intend for me to encounter. Lord, give me the comfort of knowing that I can do that as a Christian, regardless of what I may eat or drink or wear, because of what you did on the cross and afterward to fulfill all the law. So Lord, help me to love my neighbor as much as I love myself as I possibly can, 
Lord, more than I love myself on those days when I'm not at all happy with who I am or how I'm behaving. And help me to recognize where the balance is for me in this concept of moderation, knowing that the real celebration will come ultimately when I hopefully get a chance to see you face to face and accept whatever hospitality you may extend. Lord Jesus, I promise on this day that if the hospitality you extend to me on that day includes an alcoholic beverage, I won't read you the rules and I won't tell you you're wrong. I'll thank you. I'll thank you for your hospitality that day and all the days leading up to it in all of your ways. In your holy name I pray. Amen. What happened this morning, man, I agree, it was peculiar. But water into wine, I... All shapes and sizes, Vincent. Don't talk to me that way, man. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. Next on Walk the Earth, whether Easter Sunday is the most important day in the Christian calendar. Thanks for listening.